0: Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hi, it's Julie. Thanks for tuning in to Served Up. We have a very special episode for you today, and we're kicking off National Disability Employment Awareness Month of October. Did you know there are over 60 million people with a disability in the US and they are not all visible? We sat down with Yannick Benjamin, founder of Wheeling Forward, a tour and advanced sommelier with the Court of Master Sommeliers. Yannick shares his story raised by loving immigrant parents in Hell's Kitchen, New York City, brought up in restaurants and his life changing experience where he learned how to overcome continue to go after your passions, thrive and help others along the way. Now sit back, grab your favorite glass of Bordeaux and get
1: inspired. Yannick, welcome to Served Up. Julie and I are just so honored to have you on the show. Thank you.
2: Thank you for having me. It's an honor as well
1: you know, we can't wait to hear all about your journey and all of the good work um, that you've been up to.
2: Well, thank you very much. I look forward to uh, learning more about both of you as well.
1: Thanks. So Yannick, uh, you know, we met
0: recently and it's so nice, the world that we live in, right? That we can really just connect um, so easily. Uh, We didn't even have to, you know, go all the way to New York to first meet you. I think we just, it was a couple buttons away. And um, I know you're doing some amazing work uh, for the disabled community. Can you just tell our listeners, what is your background? Where did you grow up? What was your family like and what brought you to where you are today?
2: Thank you very much for that question. Um, I, I'm born, born and raised right in the heart of Manhattan. I grew up in a neighborhood called Hell's Kitchen, which is basically a, a five-minute walk from Times Square. You know, I grew up there. It was, it was pretty gritty during the 80s. Both of my parents are French immigrants. My dad's from the north of France, from a place called Brittany, in French called La Bretagne. And my mom is from Bordeaux. My parents both met here in New York City um uh, my father came here right after the French Algerian war in 1963 and um he went right into the restaurant business um he followed his two older brothers who also made a living working in restaurants so growing up um i kind of got caught up in all that all of that because we would have sunday dinner we would have a lot of the uh, relatives come over or friends in the business and i thought it was a very fascinating um you know, industry. And, you know, myself growing up, you know, I had this dichotomy of growing up in this area, in this neighborhood, which was quite poor. It was during the crack epidemic, but yet inside my home, um, it just felt different. You know, here we were drinking nice bottles of wine, eating foie gras, listening to these incredible stories of the restaurant business. And so it made me forget about what was currently happening outside when I left my building, which was 664 10th Avenue. And I knew that pretty much by the age of 13, that I wanted to be in this industry. I just love these stories that my uncles and my my father would tell and, and their friends. I said this is the industry that I want to be in. I want to be around people and I want to entertain and I love food and I love beverage. Didn't really know that I really loved wine, not at 13, but I knew that I wanted to work in that industry. Of course, you know, like every immigrant that comes to America when they have kids, they sort of have these dreams that their kids are going to go into politics or become a doctor, become a lawyer, you know, work in an office where there's air conditioning, you know, work nine to five, I mean you know. and so, of course, when I told my mom and dad that, they were kind of like, "Oh no, no, you know I mean, they they were very supportive, obviously, but um, you know, that was the route that I went. I went to college for a little bit. That didn't work out so well. And then finally, my dad said, okay, you're going to work in restaurants. Because at that time, I was working in restaurants, but more casual restaurants. And uh, my dad created a resume for me. This is like back you know, in the the mid-90s. And there was a a, a computer, a brand called Tandy, which was a brand that was uh, made by Radio Shack. And so he created this whole little... And I wish I had this resume. I wish I would have kept it and framed it. But uh, the resume basically said my son Yannick Benjamin would like to work in the right, and it was like all in broken English and everything. And basically, my first real like high-end restaurant job at the age of eighteen was working at Le Cirque Two Thousand, which was really an incredible place. And I always describe the best like the way it was for me because I was wide-eyed, had no idea about this whole world that existed. Um, If you ever watch Goodfellas with Ray Liotta when he was a kid and he's describing like what he sees around them. It was basically like, that's how I kind of felt. And so it was, um, and right then and there, then I just, it kind of confirmed that this is it. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And that's how it kind of, uh, and that's how it progressed. And at that time there was a young American wine director. His name was Rob Fursum. He was the first wine director for Le Cirque. And I said, Oh, this, this guy has a really cool job. He was very relaxed. People loved him. And um, so then he was kind of very influential on how I decided the direction that I started to take at that young age.
0: That is awesome. What an incredible story. I mean, I can just I could hear the family and, you Mm -hmm. know, you could just envision it all. And I just love the fact that your dad was like, let me write you a recommendation letter, (laughs) you know, like, this is like the, you know, the most um, prestigious thing you can receive is like the recommendation of, you know, um, as a father. So I thought that's awesome. So then, you know, so you're working at all these great restaurants. I know you are, um, you've gone through the quartermaster master sommelier program. What level are you?
2: So I took the advanced level back in 2003. And so while I was working at Le Cirque, I started to take, you know, some certification courses. And it wasn't really until um, I landed a job a few years later after working at Felidia and at John George and Oceana that I was working under a master sommelier. His name is mm-hmm. Willie Schur, who's out in Northern California right now. One of the nicest guys. Um, just love the guy. And he was the wine director at this place called Atelier at the Ritz Carlton on Central Park South, and the chef there was Gabriel Kreuther. I had worked with them already at John George, and it was really like the the, the next big coming to New York City. And um, I didn't really know much about what a master sommelier was. It was kind of new to me. And um, he was telling me, he's like, "Yeah, you're you know you're smart enough. You know, uh, take some certificate, you know take the intro course, and then." After that, um, I was signed up to take the actual advanced course um, in Chicago in 2004, but then um, in 2003, in October 2003, I was in a car accident that left me permanently uh, paralyzed. Um, so talk about an obstacle and Then I'm like, oh my God. So I was in, I was in the hospital you know, between surgeries and rehab and all that kind of stuff for a good three and a half months and after i left i went back to the ritz carlton they were so kind to me they let me come there to work you know do more admin stuff reservations get my work stamina back up feel productive give me a sense of purpose which was really key for my mental health and i i'll never forget that but while i was there i was still studying i was still tasting and willie really sure it was still like don't give up don't give up yeah you're in a wheelchair but it doesn't mean that you can't do service and all this kind of stuff and so I had to confirm with the administrators at the uh, Court of Master Sommeliers if I was going to take the exam. And so I certainly then I finally confirmed. And Willie Schur was very supportive. And um, I took the exam in August two thousand four in Chicago. I think it was called the White, Hole, White Hall Hotel, and that's where I passed. Um, it was a pretty good group of people. Uh, it was an amazing feat, um, you know, considering that, you know I was less than a year that I had been injured.
0: Oh, my God. Congratulations. Wow. That's I mean, I I have to let Bridget chime in here because I don't want to take over the interview. But, no, no. you know, I know how hard that is. I, I did get my certified. And even no. just doing that, I was like, oh, my God, I respect my psalm so much. No, I no. always did. But you realize like how much work it takes to like study for these and prepare. And and the fact that you did the advance because that one is strongly on service and at this time was post your accident. You still went and did it. I mean, tell us about that experience. And sorry, Bridget, I swear I'll let you.
2: Ask <laughs> next. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, no doubt about it that I was on an even playing field when it came to tasting. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I was definitely in an even playing field when it came to theory. So my disability had nothing to do with both mm-hmm. of those sections. However, Um, The the real challenge was having to work service in a wheelchair, how trying to figure out how I was going to carry wine glasses without them tipping over, especially champagne flutes Um, and just being adjusted. It takes time to like really adjust uh, what it's like to be in a wheelchair, you know, so it happened really fast. You know, I trained quite a bit. And to be quite honest with you, I mean, I was very lucky because there were a couple of uh, master sommeliers who never judged how I was doing service in a chair, but judged that I actually knew what I was doing. They could tell that I was experienced, you know, and they were able to, to view it from a very abstract form. Now, of course, if you went black and white during the service, maybe I wouldn't have passed, but clearly it was, it was evident that I knew what I was doing, that I had the experience, that I had been doing this for a long time. I was just kind of put into a, uh, a unique situation. I had that base of working as a sommelier, as a waiter, as a busboy prior to my accident. Um, there was no, there was nothing going on. I mean, I, I would Google constantly sommelier with pe- with people with disabilities, and nothing would really pop up. You know, I had the support of so many people, but really, you know, the, the best way to get advice is, is is from someone that actually is in your situation. I really didn't have that. Um, But I was very lucky anyway. And so it it was really a great confidence booster to have to overcome that hurdle in such a short time from the, the car accident.
1: I'm just blown away. You went through the program so quickly after your accident. But you did mention something a few moments ago about mental health. And I want to talk to you just a little bit about that beyond physical capabilities when we go through trauma you know, that, that is a a real thing that lasts um, with us for years. and sometimes never goes away. And the fact that you were able to say, and I'm just going to say it, I'm going to say a bad word, but you were able to say, you know, like, fuck this (laughs) and apply your mind at the highest level to this program. And so I want to hear from you. What did that mean for you? How did that maybe help you carry you through, you know, that really difficult time?
2: Yes. So first off, I mean, I I think, you know, Thomas Keller, who is the chef of uh, Per Se and French Laundry, obviously, um, he always says, you know, you can have passion, but to really pursue your passion, you need to have desire, right? Desire. And because you're going to, there's going to be a lot of failures, that come down that journey, that's just inevitable. And there's going to be a lot of more failures than success um, stories. But when you succeed, I mean, it's, it's an incredible feeling, but, you know, to, to get better at things in life, you have to fail multiple times. There's, there's a process of humiliation, embarrassment, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but I think that like, you know, also you have to have um, there has to be a reason behind all of it. And I think like, for me, Was I could never accept the fact that you know my parents who you know really came here with a minimal education of like they they both dropped out of school pretty much at the age of fourteen you know and they came here with not a lot right you know I mean they you know very blessed that they've done really well for themselves you know hardworking people but again I just I just always had it here in the front of my mind like oh my god like I just can't have people asking my parents how is your son. Yannick doing and them having to respond, like, yeah, he's doing all right. You know, I mean, he's surviving, he's he's at home, he's uh he's watching TV every so often he just rolls around and all that kind of stuff. And so that's what really, really motivated me because I felt like they they've sacrificed so much for me, and that it was almost I had an obligation to honor them. But of course, like you know, that that's one part. But the other part was that of course I like absolutely loved the challenge, um, of having to go through the process and I love food and wine and I love traveling. So I just knew that like, I needed to figure this out, but I I also was very realistic. I knew that it was going to be incredibly, incredibly difficult.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, the fact that you had already made it up in your mind, right? Like I'm doing this. I'm going to work hard. I love it. I love this industry. I want my parents to to feel proud and happy because they want you to be happy. If you were just surviving, that's not happy. Right. And it could come in in many different ways. And for you, it, it's this crazy industry that we're all hooked to. Right. It's um food and wine. And so, you know, go back to you're Googling, you're researching, like somebody had got to go through this, right? Like I need somebody to talk to and, and, and you didn't find anything. And, and that kind of brought me to like, were you the first advanced candidate for the court of masters that, um, passed or that went through the process and passed in a
2: wheelchair? Yeah. So, um, in a wheelchair, yes. I don't know if there were others that had some kind of disability. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for for being real specific about that. Mm -hmm. But um, I think in a wheelchair, for sure, um, I was the first one. Um, I mean, it was very new to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And at that time, they were a bit more rigid with um, their philosophy. And I think not rigid in a bad way, but just kind of rigid that that it really threw them off guard. Right. It was like, Mm -hmm. oh. And the reality is, I think service can be great. Great service doesn't mean that someone has to be in a bow tie. You can have great service with someone wearing blue jeans and sneakers and all that kind of fun stuff. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And you can have hip hop blaring in the background or you can have heavy metal in the background. I think they kind of realized that. And but it it wasn't as easy. I mean, there was there was discussions on how they were going to go. And they made it I guess some people made it a bit more difficult. And luckily, there were other people there that were very open-minded, that um, were of um, mind of like being able to see things in an abstract form. And it all worked out very, very well. Thank goodness.
0: You, you mentioned earlier that maybe the service isn't perfect or, or whatever the case is, because, you know, I mean, it took you yeah. seven years to get used to like new way of moving and, and having that grace and, and, you know, all of that. And, and I, it's possible. I see it all the time, but it takes time. And the fact that it really was, and I never thought about it that way, but it really was about knowing the process, knowing what's supposed to happen next. You know, I mean, that's the hardest part, right? Then the execution kind of flows. So from there, where did you go, right? Um, Because I know you've started an amazing organization. And by the way, for our listeners, this was over 10 years ago when this happened and I mean, think of how the court is like so strict today. Imagine how it was that many years ago.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously um, the court has gone through a lot of um, identity changes and it's still currently going through it. Um, and I think, uh, you know, trying to go in the right direction and change with the times. I mean, you have to right? you know, for sure. I mean, uh, this is, this is what makes a uh, great organizations, the ability to stay relevant, you know? Um, but yeah, that's, Actually, when I took that exam, what well, that was back in in uh, two thousand four, and there was no certified. It was intro, advanced, and then you took the last level. So you can imagine, like, so they, they they the the certified is probably about ten years old and all that kind of stuff, which I think has been a great addition. Um, but um, I, I mean, I, I'm happy. Um, to see a lot of people continue on with their wine education and continue on with their passion and, and have the desire to go with um, the process. Because listen, this is it's a very difficult industry. It's a beautiful industry. It's a wonderful industry, but it, it it's it's very challenging and it can be very unforgiving. You know, you've got people who yeah they work in restaurants. They they make a very good living. Maybe even make a lot of money, but then they're not provided with healthcare and there's still there's still situations where i mean um you would think that after the pandemic um that some kind of major reform would happen across the board for all restaurants for all for the entire hospitality industry period and that really hasn't happened i mean there were a lot of people posting and things were trending and i hope that we can we can change that very soon um but but to kind of go back to what you were saying what happened after that Unfortunately, the uh, the Ritz Carlton Hotel, uh, the restaurant itself was a uh, really kind of um, would start would fell victim to pretty much the beginning of the recession, you know. And so then I was out of work and then I had gotten very sick. I had major health issues. I had to get oper- in operation and, you know, my mental health started to kind of like uh, it was just exhausted, you know, and I I really kind of I would probably say that I was probably borderline depression or if not depressed. You know, I definitely had anxiety for sure. And then I was lucky enough to find a job at this new retail store down in the West Village, working for a gentleman gentleman named Jean-Luc Ledoux, who just so happened to be from the same village in Brittany as my dad. And um, I spent, uh, you know, pretty much uh, 10 glorious years there. Um, It was wonderful. It was great. And then I knew I wanted to get back into restaurants. And I kind of gave up on the fact that I was going to work in restaurants because I had faxed at that time. I had emailed and I reached out to all my contacts and I really didn't have any luck. And there were a lot of reasons for it. I mean, obviously, in New York City, all the tables are crammed up. So how do, how do I possibly get around the restaurant to serve people? You know, the cellar might have been downstairs and there were flights of stairs. I mean, there were just a lot of reasons for it. Some people just were like, no, we don't want a person with a disability. You know, I mean, they didn't say it that black and white, but it was very obvious. In any case, I had done a couple, a lot of sommelier competitions, which was really great. One of the judges happened to be a general manager at a very famous private club on 54th and 5th called the University Club in Midtown Manhattan. And he had reached out. He said, I'm looking for a sommelier. I thought it was a joke because I kind of erased that, you know, that I was ever going to work or if I was ever going to work as a sommelier, it was because I was going to open up my own place and built it around my needs. And so I went into this interview and it must have lasted, I don't know, four or five minutes. It was very short. And he simply asked, he's like, I really want to, I, want, I really want you to work here. I was one of your judges. I thought you did a great job. Um, Just let me know what reasonable accommodations or what we can do to make you feel comfortable here. And I thought it was just a, a real joke. I mean, I didn't still, I really, I mean, not honestly, and I said, oh my God. And and I spent uh, eight years there, Um, really eight wonderful years. And they they were really incredible. And I worked the floor and worked every night and um, I loved it.
1: That's amazing. And I know that that um, story really brings us to where you are today. And I want to just take it back just a moment because you mentioned something like about tables being too close together or, you know, um, the supply room being in the basement. And I just wanted to share with you very quickly last weekend, um, I was with my mother who needs to use a, a walker and she needs right. to use a three wheeler and she's hunched over. She had a stroke last year. She's not in great health and taking her, you know, going out to dinner with mom can be a nightmare. And. Sure. I, I have to tell you, went to, out to lunch last weekend at a mall here in Illinois, and I won't say where, uh-huh. at a very nice upscale place because mom doesn't get out much at all because she has to use a walker, almost never goes out to dinner. And I asked to be seated and there were high tops available. Well, mom can't get into a high top. She can't. She can't mm. get up on the chair.
2: Yeah.
1: And I said, I'm sorry, that won't do. We can't sit in the bar area. Can no. you please accommodate us in the dining room? And the maitre d' actually said to my mother, he goes, well, can you just leave your walker here and walk down the ramp? And I looked at him and I go,
2: "That's crazy." no, she
1: That's can't. Dangerous. She can't do that. I wish she could. Of course. But guess what? She can't do that. And she really wants to eat here. She hasn't been here in over two years because of COVID. Can you please move a table to make space so she can get through and keep her walker next to her? Because all of her stuff's in her walker too, like her purse and it's in the bag and her, you know, all this stuff. So understanding just from being with my mother, just the struggles that it is just to go out to lunch, right? Yeah. Um, I know that it it's beyond important and incredibly inspiring the program that you created and really the passion that drove you to give birth to wheeling forward and want to hear all about that. And I also want to thank you for that as well.
2: Well, um, thank you for sharing that story. Um, Unfortunately, that that story that you just talked about is all too familiar um, for a lot of people with disabilities. Um, I think what people need to realize is that there's 61 million Americans that have a disability. Now, that's, a, that's not a, a number to sneeze at, and it's not a number to ignore. And that, that would include people with physical, intellectual, um, hard of hearing, um, low vision, um, you know, uh, mental health, uh, so on, and so forth, you know, invisible. I mean, I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times that, you know, I have people who have come to me Who I always thought were, you know, I mean, able-bodied, life was good. And they were like, thanks for sharing your story. Um, I have a disability myself. Um, I just never talk about it because I'm afraid that I'm going to be judged. Um, You know, whether it's dyslexia, uh, might be a, a stuttering problem that they've been able to hide, you know, major depression, bipolar, you name it, you know, that falls in the category of invisible um or hiv aids you know um that falls under that category as well and so yes that story that you just said uh, um i hate to say this but it's not it's it's one of many many stories and um you know this is something that we as a community need to work on because we have completely you know we have these kind of invisible barriers in a lot of these hospitality establishments right And a lot of uh, Americans that have a disability don't want to go out to eat because it's exactly that story that you just said. They don't want to deal with that type of stuff. It's so incredibly hurtful and it's so incredibly discouraging that and maybe it's no fault to this gentleman's, um, you know, lack of education or, you know, and and we're certainly. But the, the company itself, the owners, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility, those of us that are in the industry to kind of really kind of set the standard of like having to deal with people of all backgrounds, not just people with disabilities, but of all backgrounds, you know, um, how to deal with people that have certain religious beliefs. You know, um, if someone comes in, they want to eat kosher food. How do we deal with that? You know, and, and all of that kind of stuff and making them feel as comfortable as possible. Um, and I think that's something that we, we really lag on or really behind that stuff. And even though we've seen so many people in our industry post about, BLM and the Me Too movement, you know, it doesn't stop at that moment. Like, yeah, posting it once, it's great. But the work really happens continuously. It never ends because, unfortunately, racism, any kind of form of discrimination, um, Me Too, all of that, that, unfortunately, there'll never be an end to that. I hate to say that. But how do we diminish that? How do we implement better protocols so we can reduce the numbers as much as possible? and that's the key.
1: Yes. yes, it's key and it is at the heart of hospitality.
2: And it's at the heart of hospitality.
1: Yeah, hospitality is not only accommodating someone that says, "You know what? Um I'd love to have this table for my mom. Can you just push that table over a half of a foot so she can fit her three-wheeler and be kind to her. She hasn't been out in 2 years to a nice restaurant." And and I and like you said, I don't think that the gentleman knew, you know, that he was being a dick but
0: uh, he was, I mean, and it, and a lot of it is training, you know, I, I love to assume that people are considerate and kind and thoughtful and, and unfortunately right. it's not. And, and many reasons for that, but, you know, I think you bring up a really good point. It really is about inclusivity mm-hmm. in so many ways, you know, and, um, and with everything going on, like, yeah, it's great to put your stands out there that you don't agree with discrimination and you want an inclusive society and you're doing the work. Well, what processes are you changing, right? Right. Like what protocols are you changing? Nobody just wants to hear of work, right? It's like, what changes are you making? And, you know, but it, it takes people like you, you know, it takes all of us to kind of be that first one so that you start testing the system. And, you know, so tell us about that journey. So, you know, yeah, like yeah. I want to we want to know all about Wheeling Forward because that yes, is just incredible.
2: So Wheeling Forward was started in 2012, along with my colleague, Alex Lagudin and my dear friend. We were both roommates in the same rehab hospital. He was in a separate car accident. I was in a separate car accident. But we just so happened to be in the same room. And what only divided us was one one curtain. Right. So really kind of uh, you can imagine the bond that you would build. It's almost like, uh, I guess, like twins. Right. They're born together and their formative years are together. So kind of like you can only imagine one thing that we both realized, you know, he's from a family of Russian immigrants. So am I hardworking, blue collar. My God, we were so blessed. You know, we had people come visit us every single day, every hour, bringing us food. We also knew that we had a home to go to after rehab was up. We also knew that you know, we had the financial means to make small home modifications, whether it was you know putting a ramp or building a ramp or putting grab bars in the bathroom, making the, door, the doorways wider. Those things go a long way. And a lot of the individuals are what became our friends and who are still our friends up today, who were other patients on that floor, on that rehab unit. They had very much different anxieties. Um, A lot of them did not go back home because they didn't have the financial means or they lived in walk up apartment, you know, walk up building. So they, a lot of them went to nursing homes. A lot of them didn't have family members who didn't come visit them or friends, kind of almost forgotten. Despite the tragedy that both Alex and myself went through, I think we were smart enough and and we felt blessed enough to know that like wow we are really we're we're too lucky individuals to have this incredible network of love care and support you know so we knew that one day we would want to we wanted to create at least a, a grassroots you know small kind of um mom and pop nonprofit where we would really kind of help individuals particularly those that are from you know in financial distress and then help them reinvigorate their passion and help them achieve their objectives. And that's how really kind of willing Forward happened. And it happened a good few years after our accident, because we, we, you know, he went back to school. I went back to school. We were figuring things out, but I knew that I was still, I was still very much connected and supported by the food and wine community that we would be able to raise some funds through wine events, through food events to really raise money for Wheeling Forward and, and, and help us go after our mission. And that mission was to, again, help people with disabilities that were from lower income backgrounds and provide them with little things that insurance doesn't give two craps about, you know, whether it's a power chair, um, you know, medical uh, supplies, um, helping them pay for, for school, things to really better them and provide them with the res- resources to, to succeed.
1: So can you tell our listeners um, how they can get involved and sure. where do they, where do they find Wheeling
2: Forward? Right now, the best way to, to to find out information about all of our events, what we're up to is really just to go to wineonwheels.org. Wheels with the S at the end. So wineonwheels.org. That's the best way to go. And then there's a link that also links up to Wheeling Forward. But um Up until the pandemic happened, we had done some fundraising in Washington, D.C., Portland, and Chicago. And we were going to do events down in Texas and then in uh, California. But, of course, this happened. So we haven't been able to do any kind of events. We've done some webinars and so on and so forth. But uh, um, I don't think we're going to be able to do anything until 2022. That's the reality of things. You know, we we obviously want to be very safe. Our wine events, usually like, you know, we had about three, 400 people packed in like sardines. <laughs> um, but that's not going to happen right now.
0: Yeah. That's, um, that's incredible that you were able to, to start that organization. You know I mean? I think bringing awareness and having a network. So somebody else that has yeah. a disability that didn't feel that the industry was inclusive to them or they could be open about it yeah. um, does so much for so many people. And, Yes. You know, you're also paving the way in, in how a restaurant is designed, right? Take us through that in your newest, latest venture.
2: Yeah. So the, the one thing that resonated with me when I was really trying to get back in the game post car accident in my new life in a wheelchair as a paraplegic, I had been told by people and even though they didn't mean anything bad by it, but it was kind of hurtful. You know, I would have people say like, Yannick, why are you doing this to yourself? why are you so insistent on trying to get back in the industry? You know, why don't you go work in a tasting room? Or, you know, why don't you go back to school and get a law degree or go into finance or anything like that? And it's, oh my God, man. You know, it's like my brain was simply not conditioned to like be in an office, you know, sitting on a desk all day. One, and then other people would say, Yannick, the only way you're ever going to work on the restaurant floor is if it's designed and built for your specific needs. I said, "Geez, wow, like, you know, this is crazy, you know." And but I knew that towards like especially within the last 5 years, I was really thinking about um trying to open up a small restaurant but where there was universal design, where I could get in a wheelchair behind the bar, serve people drinks, serve people food, be able to get in between tables and all that kind of stuff without having it to sacrifice financially, right? Because, listen, I'm very realistic. I understand that every table that's not in the restaurant, that's a lot of revenue lost. There's just no doubt about that, you know? However, I also felt that if I built this restaurant and made it very inclusive, barrier-free, had a staff that was trained, well, I have 61 million people who are looking to go to a place where they feel like they're going to get their money's worth. And, you know, it, it's really worked out quite well. So I built this restaurant where people with disabilities of all kinds, of all backgrounds have heard about us. And yes, of course, the universal design is, is so important. But here's, the, here's, here's, here's what's great. We've created an energy and an ambiance of welcoming for people with disabilities. And the staff knows how to deal with them. They know how to communicate. Whether it's someone who's from the low vision community, um, whether it's someone with, uh, in a wheelchair, whether it's someone with an intellectual disability, there's, there's empathy and there's a desire to please. And so people with disabilities know that. So we, every night, I would say, which may seem like a small number for a lot of people, but it's not. It's definitely a better number significantly than most restaurants. About 5 to 8% of the clientele on a nightly basis that comes to contento has a disability.
1: And what you're creating, you know, if you think about it, it's just true hospitality. Correct. It's true hospitality. So when people go out, you know, when I said earlier, like it's a nightmare to bring my mom out. It's not because she has to use her three-wheeler. It's not because it's hard for her to get around. It's not any of those things. It's not. It's, it's how she gets treated when she goes into a restaurant. It's the treatment that she receives. It's not all the other stuff. It's not. It, that's just, we love my mom. It's just, it's of just, course. you know, that treatment that you, and you should receive hospitality. You should feel like, you know, I'm at home when I'm here. I feel good. And I want to come back because the food is delicious. And the experience right. was wonderful. And that's what we all hope for any place that we give our money to. And right now, especially right now, because we still are living through this weird pandemic, is that people are really being conscious of where they're putting their dollars.
2: Absolutely, 100% could not have said it any better. I think that, you know, first and foremost, just think about the process that it took your mother to get ready, to get in the car, to get out of the car, to get to that restaurant. You know, it's like, come on, she should be getting the red carpet. You should be so excited. Wow, you went out of your way. We know that it's not easy. It probably was a pain in the ass for you to like get out of your house, get in the car, just probably standing up on the walker. You're, it's uncomfortable. You're probably in pain. But you chose us. Wow, we're going to make this a spectacular night. And we're going to make you forget about everything that just happened a few hours before, how difficult it was to get here. Now you're here with us. You're going to have the best time of your life. We're gonna make you feel things you've never felt before, you know. And I think that that's it.
1: Yep, and that's what it's all about. That's what, I mean, I am so endeared to what you are doing. I can't wait to visit. I can't wait to visit. But, yes. you know, one one other thing that I do want to ask you, and I would love to kind of tackle the topic is sure. when you, we talk You talked a bit about you know what it was like for you um, during the lockdown and yes. and all of that, and something that's you know our restaurant industry was clearly not supported. Um, during the pandemic as it should have been. And then just to think about, um, those that do have disabilities really not being supported and the insurance companies not doing the right things. And, um, and we've talked about, you know, the pandemic, obviously many times unserved up and how our industry is very much in silos for the most part. We're not like the airlines. We're not like the banks. Right where the government automatically gives freaking billions instead, we have to rally and fight for every inch mm-hmm. that we can get. And so, I just want to talk to you about maybe um, what would be your hopes for our industry and how we could better persevere during, even during this time that that we're living in.
2: I have this um, goal. I have this dream, and that dream would be that everyone from all sectors of the industry—and I talk about that—the whole hospitality industry, right? Whether it's um, someone working at uh, a three-mission-star restaurant, to someone that works at a diner, to someone that works in a tasting room, that to someone that 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 harvests grapes—the whole hospitality industry, the whole gamut. We have, I mean, millions. Upon millions, upon millions, people that work in distribution that are importers, the truck drivers that pick up the wines that bring them to the restaurant, the people that load up the trucks, you know, that work in the warehouses. I'm talking about the whole gamut. Now, if you did all the numbers and I couldn't tell you, I think there's currently about 11 million people that work in restaurants. Now, if you include everybody there, that's a on top of all that, that we're, we're talking about millions. We're talking about maybe close to 30 million, maybe even more, maybe just around. I don't know. Why is it that we, that we can not share one thing in common and say, hey, let's make sure that everybody that works in this industry has universal health care? Why haven't we gotten to that point? Because I think that if, if we were able to make sure that we had universal health care, It would alleviate so much, you know. One, people, you know, if they're feeling feverish, wouldn't say, "I'm not gonna go to the clinic because I don't want to get banged out for thousands of dollars." Having, you know, we have so many people that are in the industry having kids, but they don't have the insurance to cover. I just think that in order to make this industry a serious industry, to make it on par, as you just said, you know, like the big companies, like the airline industries, and and all that why don't we all come together you know in network and say hey private insurance for everybody no more excuses people pay into something i'm not talking about a union but not everybody's provided with the best adequate healthcare we and then on top of that there's some kind of pot right there's a pot meaning that if someone does have a baby now they can there's a, there's money for them they can take off they can take maternity or paternity leave, you know. I think that could be helpful. Uh, a pot for people if they need to see a mental health therapist that needs to be paid out of pocket because the insurance doesn't cover or they don't cover the whole thing. Things of that nature, sure. you know. If someone gets very sick and then their insurance gets exhausted, there's money to help them pay for the proper treatment for that diagnosis. And I think that is where the future needs to go to. But for some reason. We talk about it and then it goes here and then out, and then it's no longer the cool thing and it's no longer trending. And I'm saying for in order to keep the best of the best in this industry, we have to provide them with adequate health care, give them a 401k plan, some kind of retirement savings, you know, really treat this like a legitimate job, not as some kind of a, you know, freelance kind of position.
0: That's bold, and I and I love how you're thinking, and, and I mean it only makes sense, right? Is our biggest challenge in this industry is not I don't want to downplay it, but it's not like getting through COVID. It's it's insurance. It's very rare to to work for an employer, especially if they're a small, independent, family owned that's going to offer insurance, right? So everybody's piecemealing these small restaurants. It costs them a Fortune providing maybe they want to do that for their employees, but they can't afford it, especially the cost of goods and I mean all of that. so why as an industry and I was trying to find the the stats because I wrote it down is um people in hospitality are it's the second largest employer in the country there you go. the second largest right so when we talk about oh we got to take care of the truck industry or the you know because God forbid you know an american made company goes. Disappears, you know, and and not to take anything away from that because everybody, you know, deserves help sometimes. But why can't we, as an industry, all raise money together? And the fact that that's your kind of dream—that is incredible. But why can't we? I mean, we were, you know, Bridget and I just came back from a conference, and one thing that um, really, my biggest takeaway from that conference was CORE, um, Children of Restaurant Employees, and it's an organization that's been around for a while, but it is solely to raise money to help people in the restaurant industry when they have a problem in their family. Right. And most of the time it's their children that are impacted uh-huh. and because they rely on them. And it's, um, I remember growing up, my mom, you know, single mom, immigrant, two jobs, mm-hmm. we never went to the doctor. Like I have to be dead and like practically not breathing or foaming at the mouth for her to die. I never went to the doctor. Now my son, like, <clears throat> you know, I'm calling his pediatrician on speed dial. You shouldn't have to go into a different industry just so that you can have stability of life insurance and all of that. So how do you make that happen? like what's the next steps? How do we make that happen?
2: One of the things that you know I'm gonna really focus on you know in the next few months is really trying to see if we can get people who have very powerful platforms, you know strong leadership and see if because they, you know, people who work for bigger companies, bigger restaurant companies, bigger hotel companies, whatever you want to call it. And and, and and it's not about, you know, trying to squash the the smaller guys or it's not about the smaller guys trying to take away business. from. It's just like, hey, man, we, we will we will all benefit from this. You know, one thing that we learned during the pandemic is that we lost a lot of people and you know, a lot of people when they talk about pivot people actually pivoted you know people took the time to go online learn another skill set and a lot of these restaurants and hotels and even wineries you know even distributors and all that had a tough time getting people back and there were reasons for it because people had this realization like oh my god like i've been doing this for x amount of years i don't have much money in the bank account i don't have a savings i mean i don't have a 401k plan i don't have a pension plan i don't have health care you know what I'm going to learn a certain skill set and I'll get a corporate job, might pay me less, but at least I have a safety net to fall back on. And I'm just simply saying, like, why can we together build alliance? Why, why, why are there so many different alliances? Let's just have one alliance for all 50 states. You know what I mean? Representation in each state, but it's all within the same pyramid. And so, in the case that Someone gets very sick, they know where to go to. Someone, the same health, you know, the more people we have in, in network, the more powerful that private insurance and the better that private insurance becomes, you know, and that's all I'm simply saying. And, that, and, and if you have that, I'm telling you, you're going to have a happier employee. A happier employee means more productivity and it's better for the business. And it's, I'm talking for all sectors within the hospitality industry. It's not an easy thing.
1: Nothing good. Is I know
0: somebody easy. in the insurance <laughs> industry. I know somebody in the insurance industry, and he's pretty high up that totem pole. I'm going to have to ask him about that. Say, hey, what would it take for you guys to create a policy? Anybody that's in the restaurant industry, no matter what, gets, well, it would be a certain rate, but uh, I don't know. We'd have to figure out those
2: details. <laughs> that would be a great thing. I mean, listen, um, the one thing that I think about every single day, you know, it's a small restaurant that I'm part of is that we simply cannot afford, it's just not in our, in our budget to provide people with insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we, we're working on um, um, the city hospitals here in New York where people can get you know, uh, a, a checkup and make sure that, you know, get their blood work done, make sure everything's fine. You know? So if they find a bump or a rash on the skin or something's off that they're not afraid and they're gonna ignore it, they can actually go to this place. But, but it's something that I lose sleep about it's something that really stresses me out. It's I kind of go through this imposter syndrome of like, Shit. you know, how, I just simply cannot give private insurance. And it's, it's, it's crazy or, or any kind of adequate insurance because people deserve the right to have dignity.
0: A hundred percent. You know, it seems like such a basic need and just to be a human, right? Is that you should have a safety for if you are hurt or sick, especially when we have the best medical care in the world, in this country, we should have easy access to it. Um, Some of us, you know, are fortunate, right? We took that corporate job. We have those benefits, but that's not all of us and not for everybody. You should be able to do what you love. And we need our independent restaurateurs. We need people like you that pave the way and change this industry and bring it to the standard that it should be. And it's a fortune to be a private business owner. It's just, I, I mean, I commend you that you take on that challenge every single day on top of, you know, your challenges that you were faced with.
2: Yeah, it's certainly, um, there's, a, there's a lot of work that needs to get done for sure. But I think that it would be nice to become an industry where people who just want to work as a waiter, as a career waiter or career busboy or porter, and they're they're proud of it and they still, they're making good money, but they have that safety net and they can still provide for their family. But I think right now that's just, it's just not happening with a few exceptions and we need to change that culture.
1: So I just, I was just texting my husband, which I don't Uh ever do around podcasts because we own a brewery here in my small town, a little tap room. And we are able to get insurance. We do have two full-time employees. The rest are all part-time. And I said, you know, where does that come from? Because it comes from our POS system. So Square offers insurance and it is very affordable. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So that is an option. It's just one of many, but I just wanted to put that out there that we are able to provide insurance for two of our, our only two full-time employees, mm-hmm. but it's through our POS system square. So I just, that's, to let you know.
2: that's very mm-hmm. cool. That's good information. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: I'm like, mm-hmm. is it through square? I couldn't remember. And he's like, yeah, it's it's probably through square. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Square's yeah.
1: Affordable country. for um, it's a hundred percent affordable for the employer. And it has great coverage. That's and awesome. we're able to oh God, um, awesome. actually offer that to our full-time brewer, as well as um, another gentleman that we mm-hmm. just hired to do graphic design and often on-premise sales. So that is an option just for now that's until amazing. there's something better in place. But I yeah, want to put that out
2: there. You no, know, that's good. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing that. That's great.
1: Yeah, I
0: think that you know, obviously, there's it's just so crazy the insurance game because there's also different costs depending on where you live and your city. And when you're like a, a yeah. New York City, I can imagine. I can and how much do you, I mean? How many people do you guys have on your staff
2: for the restaurant? Together, we're just about ten people, so it's a small. Oh, that's staff. great! 10 that's 10 awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so you've yeah.
0: got like a good core group right. of amazing individuals. I can't wait to come visit and and check it out. And you are doing some amazing work. And I just can't wait to see, you know, what the the coming years will bring. I just, I think um, this idea, I think you're really on something like really uniting as an industry and and everybody that has a platform and can't contribute to really come up with a a solid health program for everybody, you know, that that make up this industry.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for your kind words.
1: It is needed. Yannick, on behalf of Served Up, on behalf of Julie and myself, I just want to wish you so much great health during this time we are living in, brother. And also just a lot of peace, man. Likewise. I can't wait to come and visit and have a cocktail with you. Hopefully
2: sometime soon. Anytime, the doors will always be open for both of you. Bridget and Julie, please come by. Um, Let me know when you're in New York and we will have the red carpet waiting for you both.
0: Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!